Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're joining us today for the very first time, you can jump in on day 246 on the plan. We're almost 100 days away from the end of the year, which is crazy to think about. Uh, And don't forget, if you've got questions that you would like us to take time to answer and offer you our sheer, wonderful, beautiful wisdom, we would love to do that at the end of every podcast episode as much as we have time for. There's three ways you can send us those questions. The first is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Or you can direct messages on Facebook and Instagram. Our handles are the Grove CH. Uh, and you can DM us there as well. There you go. All right. Well, this episode's going to be. This will be a really interesting one, uh, especially with my with my readings in particular. There's a lot of glancing over <laughs> some of the stuff, and it's not because it's true. It's not because I'm skipping. It's just because the nature of what we're reading is you, you don't need me to tell you exactly what's going on in all these different things. You can kind of read it for yourself and I'm giving an overview, but you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So we start off when first Chronicles chapter eight, verses 29 through chapter nine, verse one, and it's the genealogies of Israel, you know, spoilers, because we all know when we're going back to first Chronicles right now, we're going back for the genealogies. Uh, We see the end of the tribe of Benjamin from the line of Saul. And then we end on this line, which reminds us of where we're at. So this is first Chronicles chapter nine, verse one. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. So we're we're fully in the exile now. I mean, we really started the exile last week as well. I shouldn't even say started the exile. The exiles have been happening, but this was kind of the major big one that is going out. We are in the throes of it, which means, listeners, this week we will be wrapping up the king's tier list. Dun, dun, dun. Me and Aaron have both come in with a few changes that we're going to make. So we're going to finalize it. We'll add Zedekiah in there because he's the only king that we haven't actually thrown in. And then... And then it's over and then yeah. we're done. So that'll we, be... And we don't even really get Zedekiah's death. We just get no. the end of the life. We're just getting it because yeah, I don't think we ever get Zedekiah's death. So it's just a matter of, um, or Jehoi- Jehoiakim. He's Correct. The, yeah. Both of them alive. Uh, I was about to say alive and well, but that's not true of Zedekiah. <laughs> Jehoiakim <laughs> yes. alive They're and well. They're still going. Oh, what a what a terrible joke. But if they did die, here's where we would rank them. Exactly. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. So Daniel chapter four is where we're going to kick off after the first Chronicles little bit there. Daniel 4 is really interesting to me. So Daniel, you can kind of split it in half where the first half of the book is narrative and the second half of the book is big apocalyptic prophecy that we'll get into. I think all of the stories of the first half of Daniel are very famous Sunday school stories, except for Daniel 4. Uh, and so as a, as a recap, we have heard of Daniel interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Like yep. That's a famous one. The fiery furnace. Uh, we all know that guy. The handwriting on the wall is going to be after this. I feel like that's a really famous story. You've been weighed. You've been measured. You've been found wanting. Uh, and then the lines. Efficient, that, yes. Uh, you know, I like the Knight's Tale version. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> and then the and then the story of Daniel and the lion's den. We all know those stories. I shouldn't say we all know, but if, if you've grown up in church, it's very probable that you've heard those stories. This one is the one that kind of gets skipped over. And it shouldn't because it's really interesting. Interesting what, what happens here. Uh, there's a second dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar, and it gets pretty freaking nuts. So the book switches to the first person from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, which is also crazy. So remember that a good chunk of what we're about to read is written by Nebuchadnezzar after these events take place. And so it shows the humility of the moment of, of Nebuchadnezzar actually admitting what he has done wrong. Uh, so Daniel, Daniel chapter four, verses one through three, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So that's how this story starts. So it's kind of giving you the idea right away that Nebuchadnezzar, this is how Nebuchadnezzar feels today. And then we're going to go back in time and hear about the story that happened. 
Uh, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar has a troubling dream once again after his wise men and Chaldeans can't interpret it for him. Surprise, surprise. It's the same thing as last time. Uh, he calls in Belteshazzar, uh, which is Daniel, remember. It is always interesting to me that we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, but we always call Daniel by his Hebrew name. But everyone in the court would have called him Belteshazzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar reminds us that Belteshazzar is named after his god. So it's a good way to kind of set the tone of what's happening here. The king's dream involves a great tree that could be seen from the whole earth. He then sees an angel command the destruction of this tree, leaving only a stump to be, and the stump is, it's said to, it's going to be like a beast. It's going to be in the dew. It's going to be acting like a beast. Daniel is very uncomfortable upon hearing this. And, and Nebuchadnezzar has to reassure him. And he essentially tells him, tell, tell me what it says. Don't be afraid of the interpretation. So Daniel's very nervous to tell the king what it means, which in fairness, I, the first dream, Totally get like it's a big statue with a bunch of layers, and then a rock comes and destroys. Like, what could this mean? This one, I feel like I could enter. You know what I mean? I, 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 well, as I read this, I was like, oh, this is what it means. And then Daniel kind of reinforces it. But That's a little cocky, but okay. I, I shouldn't say you know, not in the sense of I would have the confidence to say this is what God says it means. But if you just laid this dream before me and like we're like Evan, you have to assign some sort of meaning to us. I would probably arrive at around the same place. It's 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 a much more direct dream. Uh, so Daniel then tells the king that he is the tree. And that God will humble him for a seven-year period. And so the tree, just like the tree is going to be cut down to a stump and the stump is going to be like a beast, uh, so Nebuchadnezzar will be cut down and he is going to be like a beast. And so we'll see this. Uh, Sometime later, old Nebi is on his walls bragging about how great and majestic he is, as you do. Only his closest friends can call him old Nebi, Old Nebi, that's true. But me and Nebi are... We're like this for those who can't, who, for those who, honestly, for those who can't see, everyone can't see. I crossed my fingers. <laughs> for those of you who can, you know what he did. For those of you who can, <laughs> as I look around the room that I thought was empty, this is creepy now. Uh, so he, he gets, he's essentially on the walls and he says, is this not great and mighty Babylon, which I have subdued, which I have built. And God's like, okay, you're done. And so at that moment, Nebuchadnezzar's sense lives, leaves him. He begins to act like a beast. Uh, over the seven year period, we, his nails grow super long. His hair is super long and unkept. Essentially, he he begins to look like a like a crazy like a crazy man. It kind of reminds me of the I forgot which gospel it's in, or I'm sure it's in multiple accounts. But the uh, the man that Jesus drives the demon out of, who was also acting similar to this way, Legion, Legion, yeah, Legion. It, it reminds me a little bit of that. But anyway, it, this happens for seven years. Nebuchadnezzar is out of it, out of his mind. It it's kind of seems to be kept a secret for the most part. But we can assume that his son would have. Uh, been a regent in his place at this point. And then after the seven years, this happens. Uh, at the end of the of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, pray and extol the honor of the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Uh, which I, I love that ending line. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble because there was, I would wager there was probably not a man on earth who was more prideful than Nebuchadnezzar uh, before the story. Also probably after the story a little bit. I don't think, you know, I think he learned a little bit of a lesson, but I don't think he was suddenly just like a great guy. All he's fixed. Sudden. He's cured. He's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really interesting. So this is a cool story. Uh, there is some, there is some historical evidence that this actually took place very little. And keep in mind when you're reading ancient history, they're almost never going to reveal a bad thing that happened. I, I was listening to a podcast recently with, uh, I cannot remember his name, Dr. John Bergsma, something like that. But Jacob Jinglehammer Schmidt. Anyway, uh, but he was talking about evidence for the Exodus. And one of the questions that was asked to him was, hey, we don't have any evidence from Egyptian history that the Exodus ever took place. And he was like, well, yeah, if you read Egyptian history, they never lost a battle and nothing bad ever happened because that's just the way ancient history was recorded. Very rarely do they record the bad things that Mm -hmm. happened. It would be the same thing in Babylon, but we do have 
a Greek historian quoting another Greek historian who talks about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he talks about how he was possessed by the gods for a period. And so that's kind of, it's the one little aside that we have, but it is kind of interesting that this, that could be what it's referring to when he says possessed by the gods, because especially in, you know, in ancient cultures, perhaps uh, seeing Nebuchadnezzar in this state wouldn't have been the king's gone mad, like is what we would immediately think today. They could have interpreted it as, again, he was, he's been possessed by the gods or spiritual force, and we need to keep him safe while this is happening, and then eventually he'll make his way back. So kind of, kind of an interesting look there. There is some historical evidence that this took place. Either way, Nebuchadnezzar humbled. And this is the last we hear of old Nebi. And then next, I don't know when we're going to get into the rest of Daniel. I assume it's going to be next. Is it today? Are you in Daniel today? Are you are? Okay. Not in, we'll, we'll jump into Daniel again in a little bit after we get past this, but we don't finish the book today. Okay. But okay. So but we'll, well, meaning this week, but in this podcast, we don't finish the book of Daniel yet. Right. There you go. I need to start looking into what you're reading as well. I'm just a bad, I'm just a bad co-host. See, now, now you just told everybody the deficiency. Come on. I man. know. I'm sorry. Okay. Well That's now okay. I'm, I'm not offended. So. It's totally okay. So this is the passage I was referring to listeners that we're about to get into. This is Ezekiel 40 through 48. We're going to do just a 30,000 foot overview because it's, there's not much, to, the, the, the themes are what's important. The actual text itself is very important, uh, but you don't necessarily need me to explain to you what's going on. Uh, this section of Israel is a long description of a vision that Ezekiel has of the new temple. And this is what brings us through the end of the book of Ezekiel as well. The vision takes place 20 years after his first vision from the, of the glory of Yahweh leaving the temple. We talked about that a couple weeks ago and 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem, which we talked about last week, Ezekiel is brought to Israel in a vision and he sees a new temple. So this is already very similar remember that first vision. He is brought to Israel and he see he's given a tour of the temple. And then he sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple. In this vision, he is brought to Israel and he sees, he's given a tour of the temple and we'll, we'll talk about what happens later. Uh, so when he's going through the temple, he describes the East gate, giving a description of its great size, the outer court covered in pavement along the gates. He sees the North and the South gates. They are of the same size and with ac- access to the inner court. He sees the inner court containing tables for the burnt and sin offerings. So again, this is going to be used as if this isn't just a building of legacy. This is a building where they will worship God through the sacrificial system. He sees chambers for the priests. He sees the vestibule, vestibule, which I don't know if you know this listeners. I had to look up what a vestibule was because I always forget it's a hall. Uh, so he sees the hall that leads into the inner temple. He sees the inner temple, which contains the Holy of Holies. Remember that is the place where you would have the, the artifacts of Israel. It's the place where the presence of God would dwell within the temple. And then he goes back out to the outer court with even more chambers. And then this goes down, which is really interesting. So this is Ezekiel chapter 43 verses one through nine. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like that vision, just like the vision I had seen by the Cheber Canal, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking out to me. I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of my people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their whoring and by the dead bodies of their kings at the at their high places, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by their abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger." Now let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. Uh, so yeah, we get the inverse of that first vision of Ezekiel. And, and I, I, lo- I love that this is how the book ends. It ends on this note of hope that there is a new temple and it is being filled with the glory of the Lord. Uh, when we get to Ezra, we'll talk about a little bit of some interesting interpretation that's going to happen there. But any I, either way, God is promising that he's going to dwell with his people. Uh, and especially if they turn away from 
their wicked and abom uh, their wicked abominations, their evil ways, uh, particularly of idol worship. And we do see, you know, spoilers. They do a good job. <laughs> the people of Israel, when they make it back, and especially once you get to the time of Jesus, the struggle in the time of Jesus is not polytheism. It's not worshiping other gods. Their their struggle in the time of Jesus is accepting that the Messiah is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ezekiel continues by describing. The altar that is made to be the same as the first temple, Uh, Yahweh then reveals to Ezekiel how he wants sacrifices to be made upon the return of the Jews. So there's also, so there's a a little bit of prophetic vision when it comes to, I want the altar to be the same. I want to be constructed the same as the old temple. And then it uh, it kind of reiterates some of the law that we read in um, Numbers Leviticus and Numbers, geez, I couldn't remember the other book, uh, as far as what the, the way the sacrifice should look. The East Gate is closed in a vision and it is not to be opened again. It can only be passed through by the prince, who is a character that we're introduced to a couple times. Uh, This is followed by more rules for the governance of the temple, including rules for the priests and a description of land to be set apart as a holy district. And some of this is going to be set aside for the prince. Ooh. We then see a description of the prince overseeing Sabbath and festivals of the temple, so leading the people in proper worship of God. The book then ends with the land being divided once again among the tribes of Israel, fulfilling God's promise to reestablish his people one day. That's how we end the book of Ezekiel. We're not done talking about Ezekiel because we're going to go back for a little bit, but that is how the book ends. Uh, The prince, I don't, I, I should have looked a little bit more into this. On my cursory reading, the way I interpret it is I think it has a double fulfillment in Zerubbabel and Christ is kind of how I would view it. Zerubbabel, I think the prince makes a lot of sense because both are of the line of David. Zerubbabel actually has a, he has a claim to the throne. If he wanted, if he, I shouldn't say if he wanted to, if he, if he felt like trying to overthrow Persia and and really go for it, he could have theoretically, he was in line to be the king of Israel. So I, the, the prince title kind of makes a little bit of sense there. And then he is, Zerubbabel is the one who begins the construction of the temple and, and, and leading the people in that way. Um, obviously, anytime I'm seeing a, a vague character like this in the prophets, I'm kind of assuming Christ is when it's talking about there's going to be a, yeah. a, a full fulfillment of it. That's kind of what I'm assuming happened happened here as well. And then we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 29, 17 through chapter 30, 19. Uh, we're jumping back forward in time about seven years after this vision, which that was a confusing sentence. We're jumping back in the book of Ezekiel, but forward in time, seven years after this last vision. Here, Yahweh tells Ezekiel that he is giving the lands of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar. This is followed by a lament in chapter 30 for Egypt, which I got to say, one thing I've noticed in this year's Bible reading, there's a lot of laments for Egypt in the prophetic books, which is kind of interesting. It, it, it's singled out as one of the nations that... God is directly punishing. You can kind of imagine that some of this has to do with obviously Israel's history of Mm -hmm. captivity in Egypt, but God isn't, God isn't happy with them. And then finally, listeners, let's wrap up the book of Kings. This is it. This is it. This is it. Uh, Also, we're wrapping up the book of Jeremiah, but the passage is nearly identical. So I'm just going to read the King's passage, but there's like one extra sentence in Jeremiah that doesn't add a ton. So second Kings chapter 25 verses 27 through 30. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, great name for a king of Babylon, (laughs) uh, in the year that he began to reign, graciously, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. And he lived happily ever after the end. Sad. Well, yeah, we talked about, we talked about this last year. The ending of Kings has always bugged me a little bit just because thematically it just doesn't make sense to me, right? It 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 feels like Kings should end with the fall of Jerusalem. It feels like the last chapter, the the pre, sorry, the previous chapter of Kings should be the last one. Jerusalem falls, Zedekiah has his eyes plucked out and he's in captivity in Babylon, Jehoiakim's already in captivity in Babylon and that's how the book ends. But instead, we get this really interesting epilogue where the son of Nebuchadnezzar, I shouldn't say son, I don't know if he's the son or not, but the the next king of Babylon. Uh Aaron I think is going to look up if he's the son. No, oh, he's just looking at his phone. Never mind. I'm pulling out the tier list because we're. Oh, uh, gotcha. Yeah. I'm getting ahead in the episode of my brain. So. I get it. 
That's we got, what I'm doing. We got to finalize that bad boy. Uh, it, it always bothered me that it ends on this weird epilogue of Jehoiakim just kind of living a happy life after all this has gone down. And so the last year I kind of had the epiphany and I, I just want to kind of reiterate today. It, it reminds me of the ending of the book 1984 by George Orwell, which is a classic and you should read it. It's a good time. But I've it, never read it. I, it's, it's a great one. But the the book is all about a freedom fighter. It takes place in like a, a like a communist dystopia, basically, in the future, in the year 1984, but it was written in the 50s. And this character is under the authority of an oppressive regime, and he spends the entire time uh, fighting against, I shouldn't say the entire time, but he joins the resistance and he fights against them. And so spoilers for the book, if you don't want to skip, skip forward like a minute, if you don't want the ending spoiled for you. I'm plugging uh, my ears, la, la, la. But in, the, but in the end, he's captured and he's tortured and he his mind is changed. And so eventually he's released from prison. He's not killed for what he's done. And the ending scene of the book is him in a cafe watching a news broadcast and big brother is like the dictator of who's over the nation. That's where the the phrase comes from. And he sees big brother and he starts to cry. And the ending line of the book is that he knew he loved big brother or the ending line is actually, he loved big brother. And so it's, it's a really tragic story because it's the tale of a man who was broken by what came about. And I actually think that's kind of what's happening here in Kings, where it's the tale of a man who was broken by the other empires. And biblically, I think it's the fulfillment of Samuel. Yep. Remember in Samuel, they say, we want another king. We want to be like the other nations. And the whole rest of the history of Israel up until the exile is them becoming slowly more and more like the other nations until eventually there's no difference, right? Eventually, once Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah are the kings of Judah, they're just acting like all the other pagan, pagan kingdoms around them. And just like all the other pagan kingdoms around them, they are under the thumb of the great and mighty Babylonian empire and eventually under the other empires that follow them. So in a, in a, in a monkey's paw sort of way, God gave them what they wanted. They became like the other nations and in large part due to the failures, I shouldn't say in large part, almost entirely due to the failures of their kings and the failures of the people of Israel as well. But yeah, it's kind of a depressing note, but that's how the book, that's how the book of Kings ends. Uh, that's how the book of Jeremiah ends as well. And with that being said, we're going to jump over to Aaron as we go into Daniel for a little bit. So now I can see, now that I'm looking at it, I can see that we're going to be in there. We're going to go to the other famous stories. So I like it. Or yep. just one of them. One of them. Yep. One of them. All right. Uh, we do want to take a moment to say, hey, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, go ahead and do that. Uh, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, it kind of just helps the algorithm get, get us out there to a few more people. On Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air just because we like to live, uh, give our listeners a shout out. And if you have any feedback on the show, feel free to drop it in. I had a listener give me some tough love this last week. And so it was needed though, basically talking about how I say um too much. And so hopefully this week I worked on it and I don't say it as much. It's just my, it's my filler word. It happens when I preach as well. Yeah, it's, it's a processing word. It's just, it's just the worst, but I've been trying to work on it. So hopefully this week was a little bit better and it wasn't as, it wasn't as offensive to all of your ears listening yep. to it. Uh, Aaron, what is going on in Daniel chapter seven? I'll tell you in just a second, but Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Okay. Just so, so, so is evil Merodach Bel Belshazzar or is that, is he a different king? Je ne sais pas. Je ne sais pas. Okay. That well, means yeah. I don't know in French for all you non-French speaking people. Daniel 7, that's where we pick up uh, <laughs> after all this. Uh, and this is where we're going to shift into the reign of Belshazzar, uh, where Daniel is still one of the prophets. Um, he's not as he's not as well known by Belshazzar, which is interesting. So there's some moments where he gets called uh, up. But we start in chapter 7. This is where it's the other part of Daniel where you're getting to see some of the prophetic books. Um, not, sorry, not the books. Sorry, the, pro the prophecies, the vision Daniel has. And the, I'm just going to be honest with you. They're weird. Um, to even consider in modern day, like it's just weird to hear some of the descriptions of the vision that Daniel's been given. Uh, but there are meanings. I just said, uh, there are meanings that uh, I appreciate the book of Daniel helps uh, give answers to. As a cursory example here, evil Merodach was the king after Nebuchadnezzar. He was not king for long. He was he reigned for two years and then was killed. So that's that's what's going down, listeners. In there case you go. Wondering. Hey, good news. Little tidbits of information there. Daniel 7. So here's the, the gives a vision of four beasts, uh, followed by the interpretation. We see this in chapter 7. Consists of a lion with eagle's wings, followed by a bear-looking beast, with a which is a mouthful of ribs, and encouraged and told to go eat uh, of your fill of flesh. 
followed by the, a leopard with four wings uh, of a bird and on its back. And then it has four heads as well, which is interesting. Then finally, it, it has an incom- incomparable beast. I say incomparable because Daniel can't actually describe what he's seeing. He describes it as frightening and dreadful. He describes it as having iron teeth uh, that ended up devouring and crushing everything that was remaining on earth. We now, and then there's a moment in this chapter seven where we shift to this vision that Daniel, in the vision where Daniel then sees God, who is the ancient of days, as well as Christ, who's the son of man, show up, take their rightful place on the throne, and then in essence, usurp and show their authority uh, and sovereignty and the the beast, uh, the dominion of the beast is removed. We see then in chapter 15 and 18, here's the beginning of the interpretation of this. So this is like this this incredible uh, vision that Daniel sees that actually terrifies him. And we'll get another one in chapter eight that it even, I'll, I'll read kind of his reaction to this second vision he has. But these are not like easy visions for Daniel to be seeing. It's not like we read them on the text and it's kind of flat. It doesn't have as much impact. Like Daniel is vividly seeing these things take place and it it disturbs him. It distresses him. And so we see this in chapter seven, verse 15 to 18. It says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was deeply distressed within me and the visions in my mind terrified me. I approached the one, uh, one of those who were standing by and asked him to clarify all of this. So Daniel sees the vision. He's terrified. His spirit is troubled. And he then goes to one of the people standing by in the vision and asks for an answer. Uh, And so in verse 16, it says, so he let me know the interpretation of these things. Verse 17 says, these huge beasts, four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the holy one, the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. So it is a a vision of what's to come. It is a future vision of kings, kingdoms showing up in full force and power, and ultimately God and Christ having supreme authority and removing the dominion of these kings and kingdoms. Chapter 8, we have another vision that that Daniel describes. Uh, And this one is between a ram and a goat. Uh, A ram who has two horns ruling with dominion. A male goat appears with one conspicuous horn between his eyes. I put in parentheses, kind of like a unicorn maybe. Uh, And and rammed into the ram, breaking both the ram's horns, throws the ram to the ground and tramples him. This is the vision that Daniel is describing. The goat's horn is then broken. Uh, so this is the one, the goat had the one horn, destroyed the male goat or the, the ram with two horns. And then this horn is broken and is replaced by four horns. Then a one little horn pops up from one of the four horns uh, and the little horn rules at that point. Then we're also told the interpretation of this vision. Uh, and it's explained actually by Gabriel. Uh, a voice says, hey, Gabriel explained the vision to Daniel and we're given specific names of kingdoms where the ram with two horns is referred to the kingdoms of Media and Persia. Then the goat with the one horn is the king of Greece. The large horn is told to be the first king. And then when it breaks, the four horns are referred to as the four kingdoms. And this is just, again, a future telling of what's going to play out in, in history. This one specifically, we get kingdom names though. And so we can see... And as we look at the history in the modern 2023, we see this this vision has actually been fulfilled and we see the different the, the kingdoms rise up, the king of Greece show up, the four horns come through the king of Greece. And so we see this prophetic fulfillment that has already existed in Daniel chapter eight here. Uh, and then after this vision, uh, we see this, and I'm gonna read this impact in verse 27 of chapter eight. And this again is the impact that Daniel had. He's serving in the king's court. He's still one of the, the officials and leaders. Uh, But it says this, I, Daniel, verse 27, I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. So even Daniel getting this vision, having an explanation of what's to come, still can't fully understand it because he's limited by time and space. But this is a big deal. This is a, a very impactful vision, as was the previous vision, to where it physically disturbs, it physically creates distress in Daniel, where he's sick, he's laid up for a few days before being able to step back into the work of the king's business, even though he still was disturbed by the vision itself. We then shift to chapter five of Daniel, which is where we get, we're continuing Belshazzar's reign, Belshazzar, Belshazzar's, where he is then at a feast. So Belshazzar sitting down with his people. This is the 
the vision of the handwriting on the wall, which I would actually say is probably the least of the three well-known ones that you referred to earlier. The Lion's Den, the Fiery Furnace, but the the writing on the wall is is one that's not as well-remembered because yeah, it's not true. one that's highlighted in Sunday school when you're a kid, right? You Fiery Furnace and the Lion's Den, those are like more narratively driven that's pictures true. and yeah. vivid things. But anyways, at the end of the day, this is still a well-known one. So Belshazzar, if you don't know it, Belshazzar has a, a feast for a thousand of his nobles. They're all drinking, having a good time. And in the midst of their drinking, there's a hand that appears and starts writing words on a wall. He can't understand it. So he freaks out, calls magicians and his wise men who, to come interpret what the words are, to describe what the words are, to explain their meaning. They can't do it. And then he's told about Daniel, who can interpret dreams like this and visions like this. Daniel is called, comes before the king, and then in essence give a gives an oration about the, the context leading up to the dream because the words and what they're meaning. In essence, he's saying it's indicating the end of Belshazzar's rule. And these words mean, in essence, and I just kind of took the definitions that are in Daniel chapter five here, but it says this, that in essence, God has numbered the days of your kingdom is what he's told and is bringing it to an end. He has been weighed and found deficient. This is not the Knight's Tale version, although that is a brilliant it's a great, tale. Yeah, it's a great translation. Uh, but he has been weighed and found deficient. In other words, he's in debt. He has been weighed and uh, he, he's been evaluated and he's found to be deficient. And finally, that his kingdom has been d- divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then it says in ch- the end of chapter five that Darius the Mede takes over. So you see the connection to the previous visions that he had. You see the handwriting on the wall. The kingdom is now being handed over to the Medes and Persians. And that's where chapter five ends. We then pick up chapter six, which Darius is now king. And Daniel is actually found to be a highly favored official within uh, the kingdom of Babylon, and the other officials don't like Daniel. And so this is where we get a very familiar story where they want to see him killed, so they try to trap him only to find out that Daniel is actually above reproach. There's not very many things Daniel does wrong. So they find a way to trap him in his integrity by convincing Darius to write a decree that for 30 days, everybody should pray and bow to the image of the king Darius. Daniel doesn't do this because he continues his disciplines of praying three times a day to Jehovah. The officials catch him doing it, then reported to the king, and the king is distraught at this point because this king has signed this decree. He is now held accountable to the law because you can't reverse it. You can't deny it. You can't cancel a law according to the Medes and Persians' way of life and their rules and policies. And so he spends a day trying to figure out, how can I get my friend Daniel, someone I love and care about, out of the punishment that is coming to him? He can't figure it out. He ends up having to take Daniel, throw him into the lion's den, and tells Daniel as he's opening up the the place or opening up the, the den saying, may your God protect you and save you. Daniel's thrown a lion's den. The rock is put over. King Darius goes to bed, but doesn't go to bed. He's fasting and praying is the implication for Daniel's safety. The morning arises Dan, or King Darius wakes up or gets up out of bed, runs down to the lion's den and, and kind of yells on his way. Daniel, did your God save you? Daniel answers on the Lord has protected me. And, Long story short, Daniel saved. King Darius rejoices and celebrates that God protected him, the, the king and the Jehovah God, the sovereign God protects Daniel, makes a letter, a decree all throughout the kingdom saying everybody should celebrate, rejoice, and trust in the Lord of Daniel or God, Daniel's God. And then he throws the officials that created him and manipulated King Darius to sign this decree. He throws them, their families, and their children into the lion's den. It says before they even touched the floor, the lions had mauled them and started to kill them and eat yeah, them. Yeah, they, uh, they messed it's around. It's a really great picture. They messed around and they found out. Poor. Yep. I was supposed to say poor guys, but yeah, they deserved it. Maybe not their families. I don't remember in Sunday school being taught that the lions mauled them before they touched the floor. I just remember being taught they were put in the lion's yeah, den. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So. Yeah, there's some things you'll, there's some things you'll leave out of Sunday school. It's very true. Contact, uh, audience and age matters. Uh, so that's the end of chapter six. Then we jump into chapter nine which is during the first year of King Darius. So this is still early on into King Darius's life and rule. Uh, and then we're given this glimpse of Daniel and his prayer, which I thought was really interesting. I think it's kind of, again, it's something that we don't talk about or see very often. And so as you read this chapter, it really is this prayer. It has a lament tone to it. It has a, a crying out to God uh, um, on behalf of God's sovereignty and, uh, and followed by the awareness of Israel's sinfulness. Um, and there's this two, there's three verse section that I want to highlight here in the midst of this, Daniel chapter nine, verse seventeen and nineteen. This is, this is Daniel praying 
uh, to God. And I think it's really, it's really, really cool. Uh, I think it's really, really good. It says this verse 17. Therefore, obviously after everything Daniel said, he's lamenting, he's crying out, he's talking about what historically were brought them to this point. It says, therefore, our God, hear the prayer and petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely. Remember, they're in exile. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Uh, and I just love this picture because it shows a deep recognition, not just of of their sinfulness, of Israel's sinfulness and rebellion, but also the grace and abundant mercy of God. Even in the midst of the uh, of the wrath being poured out, Daniel still trusts and put his hope in a God who has abundant compassion. And he, and he, I mean, we've seen this throughout even the Old Testament where the call is about, even Moses does this, like your, uh, glorify your name. It's your name and your reputation that are on the line. So act quickly on behalf of your people because of your name. And that's, that's probably the biggest and most important thing that we can ascertain from this passage is the, the idea of like, God, we want to honor you and glorify you, but you need to, like, you need to represent your name because we're not doing our due diligence. So it, again, attributes all of the glory, all of the accolades, all of the provision and protection and faithfulness to God and God alone, even in the midst of the rebellion from his people, which I thought was really good. So we see that in chapter 19 or chapter nine, sorry. Uh, and then we're given another vision that alludes to 70 weeks of years, which is kind of a confusing statement, uh, but it refers to this period, 70 periods of seven years, or in other words, 490 years for those of you who are good at math, with six obje- objectives to be compl- accomplished. Sorry. So there's six things to be accomplished during the 490 years that this vision is described, that Daniel is describing. The first three of the objectives pertain to bringing rebellion, sin, and iniquity to an end. Then the final three relate to the consuming prophetic events by bringing in a kingdom of everlasting righteousness, fulfilling a vision and prophecy and setting apart the most holy place, referred to the Holy of Holies, and then referring uh, to yet a future literal millennial temple. So it's very future prophetic. It it describes a period of time where God is going to finish his work, eradicating, removing sin and iniquity. Uh, and then also referring to a time of reestablishing his kingdom and righteousness and the temple uh, and bringing his people back to him. So it has this exile-like return, prophetic tones, but it also has some allusions to the future return of the Messiah. Uh, so it is this double-edged vision that Daniel shares with us in chapter 9 there. We get to take a moment and shift to Second Chronicles 36, and this is where, um, this is where the exile ends. Uh, which is kind of crazy because we've done all of this slow roll yeah, that's true. to the exile, all the slow roll is it, kind of a little quicker to uh, the role of the exile, of people in exile. But then we just get this little shift in, in our reading this week in Second Chronicles 36, 22 to 23. It's a decree of King Cyrus that in essence initiates the return of the exiles. And this is also the end of Chronicles, Second Chronicles that we'll read uh, and wraps up the book there because it's concluding. It's Darius or King Cyrus's decree. Uh, and then we shift into Ezra. We're introduced to a brand new book, uh, which just tells us we're coming to the end of the Old Testament, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, we're we are coming in hot. It's just Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and a few of the minor prophets. A few now. of the minors. Yep. So Ezra, uh, it, I'm trying to think. Typically, originally, it sound it seems like Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of one book, two parts to one book. Yeah, and each of them highlighted the main character of each section. So Ezra, who's a priest is the first of the two, and it describes the, in essence, it just details the return to Jerusalem. So exile is over. King Cyrus has decreed, let everybody who wants to go, go back. Uh, and I do like this. I was reading uh, in my Bible, uh, my CSB Bible that I read, The one of the things they have in the intro to each book is this section called the contribution to the Bible. And I thought this was really, really good because I hadn't thought about this or hadn't really made the connection and I've been doing the Bible thing for a long time, so it's, it was kind of funny and comical for me to see this. But it says this. I'm going to read the quote. Excuse me. It says, The events which occur in Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilt temple, the stabilizing of Jerusalem, and the Jewish community that developed all played key roles in the life and ministry recorded in the Gospels. And I say this because in a couple of weeks, we're going to be jumping in the Gospels. It continues to say, The rebuilt temple, 
may have paled in comparison to the temple that Solomon built, but it would serve the Jews for centuries until Christ removed the need for a physical temple. And I just thought it was such a really good picture in this time of the reading plan to consider the implications here. Ezra is leading the people, the the leading, is, is taking charge of leading people back to Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he's reestablishing worship. He's reestablishing the temple. That's what Ezra is really covering. And then we'll get to what Nehemiah does a little bit later. Uh, but we're, we're, we're introduced to the book of Ezra, this man named Ezra, who's a priest, and draws back to the, the idea of worship back in the city of Jerusalem. We're introduced um, that it, when we start reading Ezra 1, it's the same account of Second Chronicles with King Cyrus's decree, followed by a gathering of God's people, as well as bringing out all of the items so we, of gold, silver, bronze from the previous temple and given to bring back to the new temple. So there's, this, there's a decree by Cyrus, all of the people gather and rally. Cyrus then brings all of the, the gold and all of the, the treasury items out of his treasury, gives back to the people of Israel so they can go back and reestablish worship in the temple and the new temple. So that's Ezra 1. Shifting to Second Chronicle or First Chronicle, sorry, 13 to 17, we actually are wrapping up the line of David after exile. So that's the short little ditty that we're going to read of some names there. Ezra 2, 3, and the first five verses of four, chapter 4 are what we kind of wrap up this week on. Uh, we'll finish the, the line of David in First Chronicles 3, 19 to 24 at the very end of our reading this week. But I want to take a moment and work through 2, 3, 4 for us as we wrap up this week's podcast conversation through the books that we're reading. Ezra chapter 2 is going to give us a list of, of, the, of how many people, in essence, returned to uh, Jerusalem as they kind of do tallies and numbers. It totals of about 42,000 people are returning to Jerusalem to reestablish their own community, their own, their own city of God. It doesn't include about 7,300, it says 7,337 servants, as well as 200 singers on top of that. It'll also describe how many donkeys and uh, the different items that they're bringing with us from exile back to the, the temple and back to the city of Jerusalem. That's that's all of chapter two. So get ready for all those genealogies, not really genealogies, but just the census, so to speak. Then we hit chapter three, which is literally a breakdown of restoring the sacrificial system, which is the first thing they do. So they reestablish the the altar. They reestablish worshiping through sacrifice uh, to, in essence, make amends. They're making amends for their sin as they're coming back to the city of Jerusalem. They're reestablishing that system to worship God. And then they start building and rebuilding the temple. Uh, and then once the temple is complete, and we've referred to this even last year, it was one of the, the things that we remember I remember the most from last year's podcast, but I'm going to read chapter three, verses 12 to 13. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple, but many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. And that's where Ezra chapter three wraps up. And it is just this incredible picture that exists of the temple and reestablishing worship, but you've got this old generation, new generation who's only known exile and didn't see the temple in its full glory. And this older generation that remembers the temple that was built uh, and God, God brings his people back. And, and even in the, the, the sheer, uh, not magnitude, but the lack of magnitude, I guess, that you see in the, the temple that has been, the foundation that has been rebuilt and the response of the older generation, like I go back to the, the study Bible quote just about the idea, like this temple is what served the Jewish people for th centuries and God still used it to bring worship and create a community of people centered around worshiping Yahweh. And so I think it's really significant, but you get the, the, the double-edged picture here. You get the two-sided coin weeping on one half because it fails in comparison to the magnitude and the beauty and the magnificence followed by the shout and the the joy that exists in those who are returned from exile, that that's what they've known. And you get this fulfillment of the picture, even all the way back to Ezekiel, like we were just talking about just a minute ago, like this tension and this beautiful reality of the exile is, is wrapping up and God is bringing his people back and fulfilling the promises that we've read about for weeks now, contemporarily, but the Jewish people have held to and been told to 
uh, for the, a, a large duration of their history and existence. We then jump to chapter four uh, and just read the first five verses where we see that in the, that they they get the first opposition. We see God's people, the people of Jerusalem, are introduced to their first opposition. You have in, in, Judah. Uh, it says that the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, which we know as the Assyrians, if you go back to what we've been reading through the last several months, uh, there's this opposition from them about rebuilding the temple. Uh, and the reality here is they come in and they say, hey, let us worship with you because we've wanted to worship God as well. It's a manipulative way because they want to, to de- derail in sideways energy, the worship of God and the temple. The Israelites re- reject that. They say, no, we don't want to. This is only for the, the people of God to do. And that's where it kind of ends. Uh, and it says that this the this occurs throughout the reign of King Cyrus until King Darius. So there's this continual opposition that we'll be in, see more of it in the book of Ezra, but also in the Nehemiah, book of Nehemiah as we read through that as well. And like I've already said, we jump into the last section of reading this week, which is First Chronicles three nineteen to twenty four, which is just wrapping up the the last list of David's line, his lineage after the exile. So that's kind of where we wrap up this year, this week. And we're getting close to wrapping up the Old Testament. This month we will be starting the New Testament. So which is so crazy, exciting times. But Aaron, for the final time this year, it's time to rank some kings. Okay, so first off, Zedekiah, we have to put him in the tier list and then we can move around some other people. I I feel like he's the worst, right? That category. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's an evil king and then he direct his idiocy directly leads to the fall of Jerusalem. So okay. And there's no redeeming value to him whatsoever. Yeah, okay. Zedekiah in the worst category. Okay, so I came with two and you came with one of some some slight changes of the tier list. Uh, My first one. I think that Joash of Judah should go above Saul. Uh, his And this is a really weird reason, but here's the thing. Joash and Saul's biggest failures, I think, were both – I mean, it's the fact that they don't listen to the Lord, but as far as an action that they do, it's murdering priests. Mm-hmm. Joash kills one priest and Saul kills – is it 80 if I remember correctly? It's oh, a whole – I forget now, but yeah, he kills a lot more than one. It's a whole lot honest. more than one. And so for that reason alone, I put Joash above of Saul – Agree or disagree? Yeah, I'm good with that. Okay. I, th- I think that's fair and fine. So we'll bump. Way to, way to not murder a bunch of people, Joe Ash. Uh, <laughs> second one, I think I overrated Ahab a little bit. Uh, I think he's still in the same tier. I think he's still in the bad tier. But the more I think about him and Manasseh, both of them are described as just horribly evil kings. Uh, both of them are the cause of judgment with Ahab. It's the judgment against his house that Mm -hmm. is not going to go forward with Manasseh. It's the judgment against Judah as a whole. And both of them repent at the end of their lives and turn to God. So I think because of that, they need to be ranked closer together. In my heart of hearts, I cannot move Manasseh up. (laughs) And so (laughs) I must move Ahab down. And if you remember, dear listeners... Evan had Manasseh in the worst category. That's he was true. absolute. He was the he was the standards. Uh, 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 what's the word? The 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 model child for the worst category right. from Evan's perspective. So then Evan moved as we're talking through and reading through Manasseh. He's like, I think he has to be a bad king, not the worst king, which is really which is saying a lot. Right. And I would agree with you. I don't think Manasseh should be moving up at all, but I think we should move. Um, Ahab down. So I still, yeah, if, if Manasseh did not have the repentance at the end, he would be the worst of the worst. hundred percent. It's his stupid repentance that brings him up. Just kidding. It's not All right, stupid. Jonah. Good, good on, yeah, good on you, Manasseh. I, I will say I can't have, I can't have Ahab below Manasseh. So Ahab will be above Manasseh, but yeah. we'll put him one spot above him there. Yeah. Aaron, what were your, what were your thoughts? So I, I, I put in the notes, I agree with those two because I saw your, your rankings before I did. I actually agreed with those two thought that, um, I mean, it's a subtle little thing, but I, I, I agree with Saul being a step below Joash. But uh, here's the thing that I keep wrestling with, and I've wrestled with this a lot. Uh, even this morning, I wrestled with it as I was final prepping my notes, putting them together. I just, I don't like Solomon being the best of the okay kings. It's hard. But I don't like, <laughs> I don't like the other okay kings having preference over them. Where you've got Saul, which would be Joash now, Saul, Abijam, Jehu, and Amaziah. I there's none of them that I'm like, yeah, they're the best of the okay kings. And so the, my issue with Solomon, this is why I struggle with it so much. Solomon just, he, he had peace throughout his reign. 
and he just was complacent. He was, he was a fat and whatever. Like he just had wealth upon wealth. And I think that that ruined his ability to lead well. So Solomon's failures are massive. The hard part with Solomon is, and this is where we, we talked about a little bit this year, his good, the good parts of his reign last longer than I thought they did. I came into the year kind of thinking that it was almost immediately that Solomon really just dives. He, he's a very, he's a- I, But that I, cliff comes quickly and it's goes true. deep. It's true. I would say, and this is where it's hard because I think with Joash, he was a good king and that failure dropped him to okay. Yeah. I think Solomon was a great king. And his failures drop him. So it's hard. I don't think he was a great you king. You don't think without his, um, without his bringing in the worship of other gods, because that's obviously his biggest failure. Without that, you don't think he'd be in the great king category? If he, if I, I feel like, and it's hard to say because that's kind of, it's his major legacy is the fact that he's- Yeah, and I don't think, I think it's hard and I think it's not fair to- to speculate in that capacity because it was such a massive failure. And, Sol- and Solomon's failure is not one moment. It and, is, it the, is. And the only thing that time. it's, it's the redemptive arc, right? And so this, and this is the other side, I think we've beaten this up a lot and we've, we still haven't fully landed on the idea of like, well, what are we evaluating on? Like we're not evaluating worldly success because if we're evaluating from that filter, a lot of these Kings who are bad Kings or the worst Kings would actually be up in the good Kings because of their yeah. success. Jeroboam the second would be a good King. Yes. From a that. worldly perspective. Right. But, the redemptive arc is a big piece of the conversation. That's the Manasseh filter. The only redemptive thing for me with Solomon, and so I, I don't know if there's any movement for Solomon for me, but I'm just being honest. I wrestle with him being the best of the OK Kings, but he would be the best of that group. And so in yeah. his redemptive arc, which is Ecclesiastes, his entire writing, you you the tone that I get Ecclesiastes is, is one of a little regret and reflection of and deeper understanding. Like, so I, I get that, but I still wrestle like he's the best of the okay kings. That just that's sad for that's sad for the kings, mm-hmm. if I'm being honest. So I still wrestle with that. I'm still not at peace with the whole idea. He had a whole lot of peace, a whole lot of wealth and privilege. And again, I'm not okay with Joash going ahead of Solomon or Saul going ahead of Solomon. And so it, it just makes sense that you just gotta kind of leave him where he's at, but I still wrestle with that. We'll put just listeners, when you read the tier list, just know that Aaron is uneasy. We, we, we can put Solomon's an asterisk place. by him. <laughs> there you go. Just kidding. All right. Well, that is the finalized That's tier it. list. We will put it in the show notes so you can take a look at it in all of its glory. And I was surprised yeah, we didn't- We'll move. have signed copies available in the lobby. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I was surprised we didn't move any of the kings from bad to worst, but I was kind of like looking through and I was like- Yeah, I, I did the same thing. Yeah. I was like, I think they're all- yeah, I think They're, they're bad. All out there. They're not the worst, but they're bad. And the, I like how the bad tier is the only tier that we don't really order them. It's just like- They're all bad. Like, ah, they're bad, whatever. We no the, the only change of the order was Ahab to Manasseh. Oh, that's true. I guess we did just do that. So, all right. But, yeah. I mean, everybody- And the thing is like the bad kings, there was a very short reigns for some of them. So it's 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 hard to be able to put them in an order, so to speak. When you reign for seven days, it's hard to <laughs> to put yourself well, into the- You're there, the top the of the bad kings. So anyways. All righty. Yeah, well, I, think, I think it's good. I, I, I would sit Josiah being the best king- I wasn't here for that episode because I was on vacation, uh, but he's the greatest king in my opinion. I so. think so, yeah. Hezekiah, David works for me, Uzziah, Jotham, Jehoshaphat, Asa for the next level. Yeah, I think those are all, and the bad kings are the bad kings, the worst kings, the worst kings. So, All right, all there it is, the definitive tier list. I hope, hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, if you if you hated these segments, I don't, I don't think we'll I don't think we'll do it again next year. So hope, but hopefully you yeah, like this it. might be. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Yeah, and this is the definitive tier list now, listeners. So we got to stick with it. All right, let's talk about what we learned today. Aaron, this week was a struggle for me. <laughs> this was a, this was, it is, it's, it's a little hard to pull an application out of my text this week. So there's two things that stood out to me. It would be the repentance of Nebuchadnezzar and also the redemption of the glory of the Lord filling the temple in Ezekiel. I think with both of those, they're kind of telling a little bit of the same story in that you are never too far gone to turn back to God. Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar is a wicked king. Uh, if, if he was on our king's tier list, he would not be very high up. He's, nope. He does not serve God. And, and even at the end of it, you don't see him necessarily becoming a devoted Yahweh worshiper. But what you do see is him humbling himself before the Lord, which is an important thing to do. And, and it goes to show that Yahweh had every right to just kill Nebuchadnezzar or to leave him as a beast forever. But instead, he gives him the opportunity of repentance, which I think is a beautiful thing. In the same way, 
no one would blame God if he just washed his hands of Israel. You know, they, they had broken covenant so many times if he just let them go into exile and then never brought them back. And yet he offers them that same mercy and he promises a, a moment of being able to dwell with them, which, which we as Christians get to see the fulfillment of that in Christ, right? We get to see that God dwells dwelt with his people and then now the Holy Spirit dwells with us and, and we get to experience the presence of God not just filling the temple, we get to experience the presence of God with us as well. So both re- both really beautiful moments. And I think it's just an important reminder for us. And I, I think I've said this a few times because that's just kind of, a, this is a theme of the end of the prophets is you're never too far away from God's redemption. You're never too far away from God's forgiveness. And it is a mistake when we think that we are. Yeah, that's really good. For me, I really go back to that context of that contribution for the Bible, for the book of Ezra, uh, I, as I think about it, I, I'm, it's kind of humbling to think that God doesn't use, it's not about the temple. It's not about the glorious or the magnitude of the beauty of the temple, right? It's about the space used and the intent for it to be used. And the simple fact that the temple, even though it failed in comparison to the original temple made by Solomon in Ezra, the temple was still one that was servicing and used by God and God's people to establish a place of worship, to establish a place of of community, to keep people central to Christ, to God and the worship of Yahweh. And even the fact that this is the same temple that Jesus had so many interactions with, the clearing of the temple is one of those things that come to mind, right? But this is the temple that was built by Ezra in this era of returning from exile. And it just was a reminder, like, God doesn't, God isn't anchored or tied to the the best of something, but it's tied to the proper response and use of something. And so uh, I put in here, like God even uses the lackluster uh, because this temple compared to the previous temple was lackluster, but God uses that. God draws people. And so it was pretty remarkable to just sit and stop and think for a moment of the New Testament implica- implications the gospel implications that existed because of this, like because of the temple and the fulfillment of his promise to bring his people back from exile to establish a community of people again. And these are the things that we've prophetically been reading over the last couple of weeks to a month. It's just that God is going to return and draw his people back. And you just see that. And the carryover I thought was really, I don't know if I've ever picked up on that before. And I was pretty awe in awe of the fact that, man, God, your plan is unfolding in, in ways that we would never even fathom. And, and it was just fun to see that little uh, tidbit of, of uh, that glimpse, if you will, uh, of a future restoration and promise there. So I thought that was fun. It just reminds me, God God uses every bit for his purpose and his glory. And it doesn't matter about the the shape or the look of something. Well, I see, I think we see a, a major fulfillment of that in Christ. Uh, and this sounds, re- this is going to sound really flippant, true. but there, I, I cannot remember the verse and what exactly it says, but it, essentially it talks about how if you looked at Jesus, there wouldn't have been anything remarkable. Isn't that in Isaiah? Is it Isaiah? I thought it was an Old Testament prophet, yeah. prophetic book of it. It's, it's something that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be drawn to him by his appearance. <clears throat> right. So I'm butchering it a little bit here, but the idea is that what made Jesus remarkable is the fact that he is God in the flesh. Yep. Not that you all of a sudden, like he's just, you know, it's almost like the Saul thing, right? Where it's not like he's like taller than everyone and like super handsome and like, oh, this should be our king. Yeah. It's, it's God using, uh, and I, I hate saying it this way because it feels so wrong, but like the, the lackluster, at least in yeah. appearance. So yep. yeah, great point. All right. Well, last thing today, we had, we did have some questions come in. So we're stocked Hello. up for a little bit. So let's answer one of those today. Okay. Is Ezekiel's reference to Daniel over the likes of Abraham or Moses or Samuel in Ezekiel 14 effectively recency bias, or was he already that highly regarded? Based on the chronological reading, Daniel is prominent, but by this point in the reading plan on, uh, this is August 19th is when this question was sent in, uh, we're only one fourth of the way through Daniel's own book. So there's a ton of really key events and prophecies still to come. This is a great question. It's a great question. So here's the two passages in question here. This is Ezekiel chapter 14. The first one is 12 through 14. The second one is 19 through 20. First one is, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut it, uh, cut off from it man and beast, even if these men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it. They would deliver but their own lives by righteousness. 
by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. And skipping forward a little bit. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour my wrath upon it with blood to cut off to cut it off from man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord, they would deliver neither their son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. Okay, so this is a really good question. I think Noah and Job are very easy to pinpoint why they're there. They're men who were delivered from extreme hardship by God. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if delivered is the right answer, but it, or the right word. It's in the midst of very difficult circumstances and trials and hardships, they remained faithful. Yeah, like it's that picture of righteousness and faithfulness. With, with that's how I would view it. That's fair. Yeah. With with Noah, it's that the the world is flooding. This is a catastrophic event, and his salvation comes from the Lord. Uh, with Job, it's that his family is killed, except for his his children are killed, and he loses all of his property, and yet he is maintained through that by his relationship with God. Uh, if you're more interested in learning about that, you can. Look up Suffering and Silence, which is a book on Amazon that I wrote. But anyway, uh, if, if that sounds interesting to you. So Daniel is the one that kind of, st- that kind of sticks out. Mm-hmm. He, he does have some of that, but like uh, the listener points out, the story of him being maintained through that is really Daniel in the lion's den is the famous one because Daniel is not a part of the fiery furnace. That is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now you could say Daniel is taken through uh, he he is he is delivered by God from the order of the king to have all of the prophets killed, which Daniel would have been killed if he was mm-hmm. not given the vi- uh, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So that could be it right there, thematically at least, how to connect yeah. them. As as far as how is he this well known, I think when you have a prophet working, I think they were pretty well known in Israel, uh, or at least um, at least among the people and especially among the faithful. So if Ezekiel is a faithful prophet of God, it makes sense to me that he would have heard about Daniel operating. And, he, and Daniel was not operating super far away. Daniel was in Babylon. Ezekiel was, it, I can't remember how many miles, I believe it's like 60 to 80 miles Southeast of Babylon is where Ezekiel was at. So it's not as if one of them is in Israel. One of them is on the other side of the Tigris and the Euphrates. They're both relatively close to each other. And I'm sure that word of each other was reaching them at this point, because these are the two main prophets that are act, that are active during the Jeremiah, I guess is, is also active. So there's three main prophets that are active. Two of them are in exile in Babylon. One of them in Jeremiah is active in Judah up until the point of his own exile that we read about last week. So I I don't think it's an issue to say that Daniel would have been well-known. He might not have been as well-known to all of the people, but I think he was known to Ezekiel. And I bet you among that community of exiles that what Daniel was doing was also well-known, if that makes sense. I don't know if you have anything to add there. No, I I mean, I would say, yeah, Halfway through the book of Daniel, we still have his prophecy and even lines. Then I actually don't think the lines then would be the thing that would put him on the map. It, I would I would suggest it would be when he was first taken into captivity. He his name is the primary name in that group of four in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. True. He it, it says Daniel made a decision that he will not be defiled by the king's eating of the king's food. So I, I think that that actually is is something that sets him on the map in the midst of exile, in the midst of being captured. As I look at these other names and Noah, who's facing an evil world, and God is saying, "Hey, build an ark because a flood is coming." And this group of people in this time of uh, of, of the universal history would have no idea what that would mean except to build a boat for something. He stands. He stands alone. In Job, he stood alone in the face of just destruction of his of his of his entire life and well-being being destroyed for the lack of a better way to put it and daniel in the midst of exile being a captive and and standing alone and then you see the compliment of lion's den where he was already well known to be a righteous individual and he was disciplined he prayed to yahweh he was given the quote unquote spirit of the gods is what he was referred to as so i would say like he fits in the category only because and it was relevant to the time. And, and remember, Ezekiel's prophesying about exile in the midst of exile, watching exile play out. And then there's this, this tension. So I, I would say it makes sense that it's not, it's not to bypass the, the names and it's not necessarily recency bias. I think it's, it's it, what, what are the people of God going through in that moment is trial, tribulation, and, and punishment. 
Daniel's the one that stands alone, just like Noah was, just like Job was in the midst of all of that. So I would say it fits well and I could see it fitting well. And I think it's actually because I would say he's prominent because of his willingness to put his life on the line and say, I'm not going to eat that food. And it's an Esther-like moment, right? Esther's not come to the table yet. There's no story of Esther just yet in this in this timeline of history. But I would say that's probably for me more why it's relevant and pertinent and why it carries a lot of prominence and, and weight in there. That that would be my my random thoughts as I as I read the question and, and consider. That's a great point. Well, and I had never thought of this, but you you bringing up he might have been well known before. There's there's a re- it's pretty heavily implied that Daniel is high up. And so it's very and it's very, very possible that he's a member of the royal family. So the 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 men who are taken to the actual city of Babylon to be in the king's court, they're described as the nobles of Jerusalem or the nobles of Judah. So already Daniel is pretty high up there because, like you said, he's given deference from the beginning. I would not be surprised if he was closely related to the kings in, in that moment, or even if he was in the line of the kings, maybe he was one of the lesser sons of one of the kings. I, I don't want to say that just because it's, it's not it's not explicitly said, but you're right. It is very possible that Daniel was well-known among the Israelites before everything else. And that's why his his standing up to the king of Babylon and his interpretation of the, tre- of the dreams, that would immediately spread around because yeah. everyone already knows who Daniel is. So that's, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. So hopefully that answers your question, beloved listener. And remember, you can always send in your questions to info at grove.church or direct message the Grove Church on social media. Just make sure you make it clear that it's a question for Let's Read the Bible. Yeah. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And also, if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.